1: and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. Boris Johnson went to Oxford University. So did Theresa May. Naturally, David Cameron did too, as did Tony Blair. And if the Tory party ever decides to rid itself of the current PM, there's Liz Truss, Merton College, or perhaps Jeremy Hunt, Magdalen. Even Keir Starmer did a postgrad degree there. Simon Cooper, an FT journalist and the author of Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tourists Took Over the UK, has been investigating the hold Oxford has on British politics, and he joins me in the studio. Welcome to the bunker, Simon. Thank you, Ross. Let's get one thing out of the way. You went to Oxford too, didn't you?
2: Yeah, and people are saying, oh, he's written the book to show he went to Oxford, which would seem a lot of work to uh, show something quite insignificant. I wrote the book because... When I saw that this was the ruling caste and the night of Brexit, when I watched these people troop across the screen, I realised I know where they come from. I know what shaped them, what has made the ruling caste, as I call it, what it is today. And I think to understand it, you have to go back to Oxford.
1: What was Johnson like at Oxford? He just left Eton. What kind of persona did he have?
2: He bestrode the university. He was probably the best known person at Oxford in his day. And if you'd have polled Oxford students, I'm guessing, in about 1985, 86, and said, who do you think will be prime minister in 2022? A lot of them would have named Boris Johnson. He was, you know, to some degree, he's the Johnson we know today, better looking. He was a comic performer. He, like most Etonians with political bent, had a straight for the Oxford Union, the debating society. He performed sort of British oratory as parody because he'd mastered the kind of British oratorical style at Eton. And, you know, he was never very interested in facts, never very interested in ideology. He was a kind of instinctive ancestral Tory, but he was considered this kind of massive persona. He arrived at Oxford with three aims, to get a first-class degree, failed, to become president of the Union, succeeded, and to find a wife which he did. Allegra Moss and Owen, who was considered the most beautiful woman in Oxford of her generation. Johnson, very ambitious man, targeted her, married her, and then almost immediately lost interest after, you know, achieving his prize, as it were.
1: Toby Young described him as the silverback gorilla, the alpha male, didn't he? So his charisma was extraordinary.
2: Yes. I mean, he'd kind of developed his cartoon brand, even by Eton you know, it's, it's a great advantage in politics to be a very recognizable brand. And the kind of um, must-up hair and the Bertie Worcester diction, he had that down to a T. And Eaton encourages boys to develop their individuality, or at least a kind of cartoon version of that. And you see that with Rees-Mogg, you see that with Johnson, and Gove as well, not an Etonian. All these people had become the recognizable figures they are today, aged 18. And so they they didn't need to find themselves at university. They didn't need to work out how things worked. They already knew where they were headed. They were headed for power.
1: Who else was in that cohort with him?
2: Toby Young was an important outrider on the kind of journalistic end. Boris's uh, sister, Rachel, also journalist with them. But it's more that the people they later accumulated were Oxford public school men of a slightly later generation came on board the project in their different ways, so Dominic Cummings, um, Dan Hanan, who's less known, but I think is a kind of Karl Marx of Brexit. The man who was a freshman at Oxford in 1990, starts the Oxford campaign for an independent Britain, which eventually morphs into a kind of Brexit campaign 25 years later. And Jacob rees mogg who's kind of followed in Johnson's footsteps a few years later. Who else was there with him, of course, was David Cameron. And part of the British political history of the last 10 years is that Johnson saw Cameron as a usurper. Johnson had won the glittering prizes, you know, he was school captain, he was president of the Oxford Union. Cameron was, never really bestrode the stage in the same way, he wasn't that interested in making a profile for himself. So, and he's younger than Johnson. So when Cameron became prime minister, it felt like a, an offense against the natural order.
1: And Michael Gove was there as well, though he wasn't from that Etonian background.
2: Gove uh, was adopted by a couple in Aberdeen and had gone to private school. And with Gove, you see the tension of, on the one hand, he has slight contempt for the hereditary elites because he thinks, rightly, he thinks I'm cleverer than they are. They had it handed to them. I had to do, do it with my brain. But on the other hand, he also admires and envies them. And that kind of tough style, which he has adopted and has worked hard to master, came very naturally to someone like Cameron. And then the Gove-Johnson relationship, which, you know, is still central to our politics, is sort of Gove as Jeeves to Johnson's Worcester. And that has been their enduring relationship.
1: And there was Brideshead Revisited as well, which seemed to exert quite a powerful pull on that generation because there was a TV adaptation. And so did, did Gove kind of, was there almost an element of fascination, hero worship going on there?
2: I think Gove has always hero-worshipped Johnson, and I think many people in that cohort did, and I think there's also a kind of slightly uh, homoerotic adulation of Johnson at the center, and also because in the Tory party, traditional British hierarchies are very important. So it seems, it feels natural to them that the most charismatic Etonian of the appropriate generation should be the leader. And so when Johnson appears in their midst, he is always naturally acclaimed as the leader, just because on a class basis, that seems right.
1: It's fascinating in the context of how Gove betrayed him after David Cameron lost the referendum.
2: Yeah, well, with Gove, you see always that he has thought harder and worked harder on whatever the Tory project of the moment is. And, you know, I found, you know, for the book I went through, old university newspapers, And Gove wrote quite a lot, and he outlines in one article written when he's 20 a kind of vision for education. You know, that's all about standards and teaching people traditional stuff. And it looks a lot like what he actually did as education secretary. So whereas Johnson had never really thought about policy at all, um, Gove had. And so when Gove sniffed a chance of becoming prime minister in 2016, he thought, well, I deserve it. And then, of course, the Tory traditional hierarchies kick in, and Johnson's very carefully cultivated brand beats everything, and Go fails.
1: That's extraordinary. I'm just thinking about the, the hell I have been through trying to teach formal grammar to my children, and who think that it had its origins with Michael Gove in Oxford in the 1980s is quite striking. Tell us about the Oxford Union, because it had nothing to do with the National Union of Students, which is many people's experience of a union at university. It was a quite different institution. What was it there for? What is it there for?
2: It's just a debating society and a sort of social club. So you're right, you know, at all universities, there is a student union that, you know, takes action on matters like housing or discrimination. And that attracted actually future labour rights. So um, David Miliband is a housing officer in the Oxford University Student Union. That's totally different. Labour people didn't really go for the Oxford Union. What is the Oxford Union? It's a debating society that's nearly 200 years old in a massive chamber come gentlemen's club in the middle of town. And what you learn there is not to run things because there's nothing really to run, there's no policy to make, you learn to speak. And what the kind of speaking you learn is familiar to anyone who's ever followed British politics. It's about being an entertainer, about being funny. So American students who would come would be trained in a different debating tradition and they would reel off facts and statistics and people would shout, boring or facts, as a criticism. And Johnson understood very quickly that, you know, the way to win debates was to ignore the opponent's arguments and to do ad hominem attacks and to lower your voice in a calculated way at just the right emotional moments and so on. So all these rhetorical tricks, which you see in the Commons still, are from the Oxford Union. Now, interestingly, the contrast is with Labour, where Keir Starmer, like so many Labour people of the last 10 years, except Corbyn, Keir Starmer also went through Oxford. But what Labour people do is they go to the Oxford Labour Club, Labour boycotted the union for many years because they didn't like that kind of entitled toughness. And so Starmer never really learned to speak because in the labor movement, that's much less important. It was much more about, you know, I support the motion to give 10 pounds to uh, the PLO or to Brown Rice Week or to demonstrate with the striking miners. And so, um, you know, the, uh, Starmer's relative tedium as a speaker is partly because he never had this training. And I think we all underestimate the importance of debate training. When we see Johnson, we think, oh, that's his persona. No, that took a lot of really hard work on how to speak.
1: And has actually come up again very recently with Angela Rayner, with uh, an unidentified Tory backbencher, telling the Daily, uh, telling the Mail on Sunday that Johnson was distracted from uh, his uh, from the by the yeah by by Angela Rayner's legs and the claim that she thought that she couldn't compete with Johnson because she didn't have Oxford Union training. It just It's extraordinary how it still pervades politics now.
2: Yeah, one thing I wanted to do with the book is blow away this myth that Oxford turns these people into special beings who have powers that ordinary people can't have and therefore that they're born to rule. This Oxford Union thing... I mean, you know, there is a debating tradition where you find logical flaws in the opponent's arguments or you show that their facts are incorrect. And someone like Michael Gove was very good at that, Simon Stevens, who later became head of the NHS. That wasn't Johnson's thing at all. Johnson can't do that at all. He doesn't really care about that. For Johnson, the way to win debates is through a comedic performance, you know, like we would later see on television. So the idea that he has these analytical skills and these rapier thrust debating tricks which someone like William Hague did. You know, for whatever that's worth, I don't think we should particularly be selecting our politicians for that. But he doesn't have it anyway.
1: Yeah, he's not very good at PMQs, is he? He's just not that compelling. He doesn't debate. He just delivers pre-scripted lines.
2: Yeah, and what you see with him as prime minister is that, you know, I think that he, like Trump, I admire in some ways both of their entertainment skills, their presentations. I think they're very good, sort of middle brow to low brow entertainers. And the problem with being prime minister, especially when bad things happen, is that people want some substance and Johnson thinks well nobody ever asked that of me before why, why do people suddenly want seriousness and substance and you see that he's changed the haircut so he no longer does the floppy hair thing but he can't really offer more than that i was actually uh, told a european prime minister asked about Johnson a few days ago said off the record well there's nothing really there you know when you want to discuss an important issue he's not briefed on it because he hasn't read the papers so he, he kind of, you know, mutters a few things and um, tries to show the correct emotional response. But he doesn't know what you're talking about.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? Or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't
2: get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
1: There aren't many women in your book.
2: No, there weren't many women in that cast. There still aren't. Um, It's still, it was very much recruited around oxford tory public school boys the union very much favors men and um you know i, I found one female union debater of the 80s saying look in that chamber as a woman when you speak people will focus on your appearance we'll take you less seriously and your voice doesn't carry as well and um she said the whole thing is really set up for men and i think that that's still also largely true of the commons i mean the the women who have become more successful within Tory politics in recent years. Theresa May was, of course, Oxford Union. Didn't become president. I'm sure that there's a gender issue there. Her husband, her future husband, did become president of the Union. And, you know, then you have people who I think are, are less core to the project, like Prissy Patel and Nadine Dorries, who I think have been taxed on to appeal more to uh, working-class Tories with some of this kind of... <sighs> let's say, populists and answers.
1: One of your most interesting arguments in the book is that the drive for Brexit was some kind of substitute for a generation that had never seen war and yet yearned for that kind of patriotism. Tell us a bit more about that.
2: I think what they yearned for was greatness. So, you know, you're a 13-year-old boy at some public school and you're reading books about great toffs, great male toffs. And you think, you know, my gosh, we really did everything, didn't we? We, we had the empire. Very good. Uh, we won two world wars. And, you know, Great Tofts, uh, you know, wrote 1984 and helped invent penicillin and um, split the atom and did all these amazing things. And now look at us, they think. Uh, you know, we're a kind of, um, you know, external bit of the uh, European Union. We have to go to these boring meetings in Brussels. and We don't do anything glorious anymore except the Falklands. And so I think they'd yearned for their glorious project, their great project. And they wanted, you know, the remaking of Britain was difficult because by the time they finished university, Margaret Thatcher had remake Britain in such a rightward direction that they couldn't really carry that much further, you know, and, and still remain a recognizable Western country. So the Thatcher project had really ended. Was, they revered it, but it was hard for them to continue it. So what are you going to do? What is the great project of their generation? You know, what, what statue, what's the statue are these people going to say in 200 years? And that's very much on their mind because they see themselves as in the footsteps of the great male top tribe. And then Brexit became the project.
1: Because it was quite a minority pursuit Euroscepticism at first, wasn't it? I mean, Daniel Hannan was very much on board for it, but at first it seemed to mostly take the form of not joining the euro, which, of course, didn't happen anyway. Dominic Cummings was involved in that campaign. And then the focus switched to a referendum, didn't it? And I think they began to see that a referendum might be the way through.
2: Yeah, I mean, Cameron, of course, made the tactical error of, I would say, of offering a referendum. But when he did, the man who was ready and waiting was Daniel Hanan, because Hanan had been waiting for 25 years. He wasn't originally a leaver, You know, there weren't really any levers in Britain in 1990, or hardly any, but he became one, and he kind of was the Karl Marx of Brexit. Dan Hanan is a really significant figure in British history, and Hanan, you know, selectively chooses the arguments to show, and uh, has read enough to be able to convincingly argue to people who know nothing that, of course, we can stay in the single market when we leave the EU and we won't have to follow any of the rules. We can stay in the single market and there'll be no impact on trade and it will all just be win, 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 win. Nobody else had done the homework, not on the Remain side particularly either. And so Hernan had thought about it harder than almost anyone else in politics. And so when Cameron offers the referendum, Hanan has been winning over fellow travellers for 25 years. He's already got Gove, he's already got Rees-Mogg, he's got a lot of the Tories. The person he has to win is Johnson, because Johnson is going to be the comedic performer who's going to pull this over the line. And he, you know, we know that Johnson writes the two columns and is eventually persuaded, but Hanan had the project ready. So Hernan is the, the visionary of Brexit.
1: You have a fairly radical, in Oxford and Cambridge terms, idea for trying to end our obsession with these universities. What is it?
2: I think a really damaging thing in Britain is at age 17, most people's destiny is decided. And the route to the top is, is very largely closed off for, you know, 98, 99% of the population. And you could even argue it happens age 11. And I think it's such a damaging thing to do to people and it creates such a, a terrible separation. But I also think Oxford and Cambridge have many assets that can help the country. And my main idea, what I think that should become, is an Oxbridge for all. So, you know, you're 38 years old, you didn't go to university, or you did, but you want more, you want a second chance. And you're, you know, intellectually interested. Well, we will find you and we will bring you to Oxford for a year or three years or three months or whatever. We'll have constant rolling education. We'll fund it through uh, research, through, uh, through scientific research, through corporate conferences, which they already host, and also we'll do great graduate work. I mean, already these universities are becoming much more graduate universities. What we won't do is take kind of people with plausible rhetorical skills, age 17, who can get through the Oxford interview, who have been primed by, you know, often private school and family, but anyway, some kind of huge advantage in their background, to reach that point, and then we say to them, "Okay, you're 17, and here's your membership card to the elite, and it's very hard for you to lose it." And then we give them three years of training, which in the 80s was extremely superficial and heavily focused on writing and speaking well. And then we say, "Okay, now you're ready to run the country." I think it's it's damaging for the country to structure it that way. So I'm, you know, more radical people than me think of abolishing these places. I wouldn't do that at all. I would spread their excellence to the whole country.
1: Yeah, your book did bring back some bad memories of an Oxford interview, which I failed which was one of the most unpleasant experiences of my life.
2: But isn't it insane that decades later you still remember that clearly and it's still a significant episode in your life when you were, for God's sake, you were 17 or 18 it years is. old? I mean.
1: and if I could only have written to my, the 17-year-old then and said, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, and this isn't going to matter, and try and make this matter a bit less and stop your bride's head fantasies, then, yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say
2: I would. It, it might matter and it might, help in career terms, although some people then throw away their advantage and other people mm. um, catch up. But people also see it as a verdict on themselves, which is insane, mm. you know. And also that the person you are, at, I think that's a very British thing as well, the person you are at 17, 18, who did get into Oxbridge or didn't get into Oxbridge, is the person who you are. I've, mm. I've never understood that.
1: There's a great vignette you've got with an anecdote about Boris Johnson propping up the bar when someone from a state school comes for an interview at his college. Tell us a bit about that, just because it's such a horrible... Yeah, this guy
2: wrote it on Facebook about three years ago. And he uh, he has a stammer, he has a working-class accent, his father has a working-class job. And he arrives at Balliol College, Oxford, circa 1985, for his interview. And he runs into Johnson & Johnson's cohort in the bar. And Johnson makes fun of him in front of his acolytes. Johnson was always followed around by acolytes. And mocks his accent, his background, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I mean, we know that Johnson is not an empathetic person, and so on. But that the kind of classism of that encounter is uh, is for me very telling about how Oxford was constituted, and how, of course, it's a microcosm of British society, isn't it?
1: Oxford would say that it has changed, that it's changing all the time, that it's modernising. Is it?
2: It is. I mean, I would give Oxford and Cambridge a lot of credit over the last four years or so for heavily increasing the state school intake, for having summer schools, for promising state school kids where they invite them in at 17, so they spend a couple of months there or weeks there and they, you know, start to see through the mystique a bit. But um, a lot of the the new state school intake is people from, let's say, leafy state schools, And I think it's a step forward. It's not enough. And also Eton and schools like it are always trying to game the system to kind of strike back, come back in. And so it's a very difficult position these universities are in. They're doing better. There's now kind of high 60% uh, state school intake from the UK. But of course, that's still massively out of whack with the rest of the population, with, with the balance of the population.
1: Simon, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Simon Cooper's book, Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK, is published by Profile and is out now. There's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday, with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can back the bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was presented by Roz Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofrenievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme team by Ken Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.